Hello and welcome. This is a podcast of ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolnik, I'm editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org. And today's conversation of our podcast will be focused on a particular case of one particular Ukrainian citizen. Vitaly Markiev, a Ukrainian soldier, was found guilty by an Italian court for murdering Italian photographer and journalist Andrea Rochelli in May 2014 on Donbass near Slovyansk. Markiev was convicted to 24 years in prison, but is there indeed enough evidence to judge Markiev guilty? May 2014 near Slovyansk was a time of chaotic and violent war in eastern Ukraine. Who is Vitaly Markiev? Who is Andrei Rokelli? And what happened in May 2014? This is the subject of our conversation with Olga Tokaruk, independent Ukrainian journalist and documentary filmmaker, former journalist at Romatsky.ua, independent Ukrainian media. She is now jointly with her Italian colleagues, is finalizing a film about Markiev. Good afternoon, Olga. Good afternoon, Volodymyr. So, can you tell me the story? What was the story in May 2014? What happened? Yes, well, first of all, uh, I think it is important to stress that Vitaly Markiv is a dual Italian-Ukrainian citizen, and this is actually the reason why the Italian uh, court was able to prosecute him and convict him to 24 years in prison. But starting from the very beginning of this story, well, it all began on May 24, 2014, when near Slovyansk, uh, in a village called Andriyevka, on a territory which was basically a buffer zone between the separatist positions and the Ukrainian army positions, two journalists were killed. Uh, one of them was the Italian photojournalist Andrea Kelly, and the other one, he was not just journalist, but a famous Russian dissident and human rights defender, Andrei Mironov. They and three other people happened to, they uh, found themselves under fire uh, of first uh, the Kalashnikovs and then mortar fire. And Rokelli and Mironov died as a result of this fire. And three other people, including French photojournalist uh, William Rogelon, survived and he later became a, a witness, a key witness at a trial uh, against Vitali Marki. Well, three years later, in uh, late June 2017, uh, this dual Italian citizen, Vitali Marki, was arrested upon his arrival to Bologna Airport in Italy. He came to Italy on a vacation to visit his mother, who's been living in Italy for more than 10 years together with his sister and their Italian stepfather, Markiv himself uh, used to live in Italy till 2013. He gained the Italian citizenship and then uh, he returned to Ukraine to participate first in the protests on Maidan. And when the war started in eastern Ukraine, he volunteered to join the National Guard and to go to uh, Slovyansk to defend Ukraine against uh, Russian aggression. So it happened that that day, May 24, 2014, uh, he, together with more than 100 other Ukrainian soldiers, both from National Guard and the Ukrainian army, were stationed on top of a Karachun Hill, which was basically the only Ukrainian position close to Slovyansk. Slovyansk at the, at the moment was occupied by Russian special agents, uh, uh, like 
headed by Igor Girkin Strelkov, the person who is now under investigation in the MH17 case in the Netherlands. So basically, Girkin forces and their local militiamen occupied and held Slovyansk at the moment. And Slovyansk was encircled by various Ukrainian positions, and one of them was on top of Karachun Hill. So Marky was there together with more than 100, as I said, other soldiers. And somehow uh, it happened that the uh, Italian prosecution decided that he was the one who, out of more than 100 soldiers, he was the one who spotted the journalist and who gave the order to uh, the Ukrainian army to shell them with mortars. At the beginning, when he was arrested, he was actually accused of being the one who was shooting in the direction of journalists. Then uh, in the course of the trial, it was found out, it turned out that uh, the National Guard didn't even have mortars at their disposal at the time. The only type of arms they had was light arms, such as Kalashnikovs, and it was impossible to reach from two kilometers distance to to journalists with Kalashnikovs. So the uh, accusation against him was changed and he was accused of complicity in murder, of uh, spotting the journalists, of being the spotter and of passing the information about their location to his superiors uh, in the National Guard and then to the army because only the army had the mortars at the moment. But is there any arguments about his motivation? What do the prosecutors say about his motivation? I mean, I imagine the the battle when people are in the middle of the battle and, uh, well, the goal during the battle is, of course, to target your enemies, not uh, any journalists. So what does the accusation say? So basically the accusation, the prosecution, they argue that this was a deliberate attack against journalists. How do they come to this conclusion? Well, first of all, they look at what Andrea Kelly and Andrei Mirono were doing, what kind of job they were doing there in Slovyansk. They were on the separatist-controlled territory. And they look at the photos they were making that were published in the Russian Novaya Gazeta, for example, a couple of days before their death, and the articles that went out there with very striking pictures by Andrea Kelly of a family, of a family with many children who are hiding underground in a refuge where they usually conserve their winter preservatives like some cabbage and pickles and stuff like that. So th- these people who are hiding them there and these people, and there was an interview with, with them uh, accompanying those pictures in which they say that they are being shelled by the Ukrainian army. And so the prosecution um, c- concludes that because Mironov and Rokeli were writing about the suffering of civilian population in Slovyansk, so Probably that was the motive that the Ukrainian army didn't like what they were doing. They didn't like that they they were describing that the civilians suffer as a result of uh, a Ukrainian army shelling them. So this is one part of the prosecution's argument. Another evidence they base their their accusations against Markivon is an article published the next day after the death of Mirono Vendrocelli in Corriere della Sera, one of the most famous Italian newspapers, a very short article written by a freelance journalist, Ilaria Morani, who quotes an unnamed source in the Ukrainian military. She says he's a captain of the soldiers stationed on Karachun Hill later, it turned out was not the captain, just a regular soldier, who says this captain, the source, he warns her, journalists who talked to, to them, not to approach Slovyansk because this captain allegedly says that 
we usually don't shoot in the direction of civilians, but when we see the movement, we uh, start using heavy artillery. And this is what happened with the car of a journalist and his interpreter. So these are the words that Morani attributes to this unnamed caption. And this later during the trial, during the investigation, it turned out that this caption was Marky. However, uh, there are some inconsistencies in this article. First of all, it turned out that Marky was not the caption. He was just a regular soldier. And secondly, there is no recording of this conversation. And it turned out that the journalist who wrote the article never actually spoke to Marky. Moreover, the journalist who did speak to him couldn't confirm in court that he actually said these words, that he was aware that the car of uh, a journalist and his interpreter was under fire and that he admitted that it was the Ukrainian army who shelled them. Markiv denies that he knew at all that journalists were in the area, that he knew that their car was shelled. And of course, he denies admitting, uh, ever admitting this in the conversation with journalists. So basically, it's the word of journalists, of the journalists who wrote the article, and the words of, of William Ravillon, the only survivor who never saw Markiv, but who argued in court that he was sure it was the Ukrainian side who was shooting at them. So these are the words of journalists against the words of a Ukrainian military man and his colleagues who also testified in court. And the court believed the journalists more than it believed the Ukrainian military man, despite the lack of any other direct evidence that would point to Markiv's involvement in this case, that he was actually physically able to spot the journalists, to see them, to realize that they were journalists because they were not wearing any uh, recognition, any press marks. They didn't have a press mark. They didn't have bulletproof vests. They didn't have a taxi marked as a TV or press. They arrived in a regular taxi. They were wearing civilian clothes. And one of them was even wearing this something that looked like a camouflage pants. And basically, uh, the court argues that Marky was able to identify them as journalists, to see them, and that he was in a position of a spotter, and he was on a position that day, and it was him who passed this information. And here we come to the our own investigation, because the documentary you mentioned, and I'm working on uh, with my Italian colleagues, well, actually, we got the idea to do this documentary because we were shocked that w- there was no investigation on the scene done by the Italian prosecution. That's what, what I wanted just to ask, Olga. So you are telling this story of Italian pros- prosecution and you are trying to investigate yourself. So did you already figure out maybe a hypothesis what really happened at that spot? What we've done, uh, it's a very extensive work that has been going on for almost a year now. Marky was sentenced on the July 12th, 2019, and immediately after me and three of my other Italian colleagues, uh, Cristiano Tinazzi, who is the director of the documentary, Ruben Lagattola, who is the director of photography, and uh, Danilo Elia, who is another producer and journalist specialized in Eastern Europe with the knowledge of the situation in Ukraine, has been in Donbass many times. So we immediately started our own investigation. We were actually struck by the fact that there was no investigation conducted on the scene that the court was 
only using open source material. They were using uh, testimonies from very limited uh, circle of people. So they were, they were not asking other two, they were not looking for other two civilians who survived in that attack, who are direct witnesses of that attack to testify. They were not looking for them. They were not heard in court. No other journalists who were there at the time in Slovyansk who know about the situation were asked to testify. So what we did, we decided to go there and see with our own eyes the location where uh, journalists died and where the Ukrainian army and the Ukrainian National Guard was stationed at the time. So we went to Slovyansk three times in the last year in various seasons. We first went there in October, then we returned again in December. And then finally, me and the local crew from Ukraine was able to go there in late May, basically on the same day uh, when Rokel and Mironov died to see how the area looked in May, in late May. And we did a series also of scientific, basically scientific tests, the most important of which was a visibility test. We recreated the, the visibility that was at the time with the um, images, satellite images, drone images, and uh, basically were able to determine what was the visibility from Karachum Hill. Was it physically possible to identify journalists in that location, considering that it was a very green location, there were high trees, they were hiding in a ditch behind the very high trees, that there was also the train, the tragedy happened near a railway passage. And that railway passage at the time, in late May 2014, was occupied by a, a freight train used by separatists as a barricade. And they were hiding behind that train. And from that train, they were shooting towards the Karachun Hill where Ukrainian military was stationed. So we recreated it with this train, with this that we put there in a digital format. We measured how high the trees are and we subtracted how far the trees have grown over these years that passed. And even like just this quite simple test, it shows that there was no visibility from Markiv's position. So it's just one, let's say, spoiler thing that we do in our documentary, that even the visibility is under question. Then there are some other things that do not add up again in the accusation against Markiv. There is no proof that he was in a position that day. We managed to find people actually who's, who met him on that day, on 24 May 2014, the volunteers who delivered him some supply of food and and medication, you know what was happening in, in May 2014, in in, this, in spring in 2014 in, in Ukraine, that the, it was the volunteers who were providing all the necessary, even basic supplies for Ukrainian soldiers in the East, while the, the country, the state was still mobilizing its resources. It was volunteers who were doing the job. So we found a volunteer who met Markiv several hours before uh, this tragic death of journalists. And he says that Markiv, it was his day off, that he was not in a position that day, that he was receiving this humanitarian aid and then he was unpacking it. That was what he was usually doing every Saturday, not just Saturday, that Saturday when journalists died. So many, many things that were not taken into consideration by the court. Even the video, the last video of journalists, in which we hear the voice of Andrei Mironov, who in Russian says that we are under a crossfire, that there is somebody who's shooting from nearby and uh, there is a, a mortar nearby. This video was not taken into consideration because the court concluded that it was a unilateral, deliberate attack by the Ukrainian forces 
directed against journalists, that there was no crossfire, that there was no shooting from separatist positions towards Karachun that the Ukrainian army was responding to. There was no crossfire, no fighting. It's just the Ukrainian army who saw the journalists and decided to target them. Let us talk a little bit uh, about the background, because in your documentary, as far as I understand, you're trying to dig the story even deeper into the past, and you're showing that, for example, Markiv and Rokeli could have met on Euromaidan, on this protest in late 2013, early 2014, in Kiev downtown against the dictatorship of Viktor Yanukovych. Can you tell me a little more about it? It's very interesting, actually, because this is a story about two Italian citizens, right? One of them, like, who was born and grew up in Italy, who decided to become a photographer, who was attracted by conflict zones, who previously worked in Chechnya, in Kyrgyzstan, in Libya, in Tunisia. And the other Italian citizen who was born in Ukraine, who emigrated together with his family as so many Ukrainian uh, teenagers done in the late 90s and early 2000s um, and grew up in Italy, who gained the Italian citizenship there. But then when the protests in Maidan started, some call of patriotism called him to return to Ukraine to defend his country, to defend the values he believed in first on Maidan and then on the front line in the East. Rokeli, he was at Maidan as well. He was in, at Maidan in late 2013, and then he returned again in the hottest days in, in late February. He was making uh, photos of the demonstrators on Maidan being shot, uh, the protesters being shot. He was uh, actually expressing solidarity with protesters in Maidan. And then he he went to the front line to cover the conflict that was unfolding, the the war that was unfolding there. And and it happened by chance that these two people who were at Maidan at the same time, they never met there, they never met in Donbass, they were on the opposite side of the the war, but their destinies uh, crossed because Rokeli died in Slovyansk, near Slovyansk, and Markiv was accused of his murder and he was prosecuted for his murder. And it's, you know, when I'm like watching how this story is being told in the Italian media, first of all, in the Ukrainian media as well, I noticed that very often there is this, this uh, contraposition in a way that one of them is perceived as a hero and the other one is described as a monster in both Italian and Ukrainian media. For Italians, Rokeli is a brave journalist who was killed by this fascist, uh, far-right, uh, whatever, Ukrainian nationalist who just like wanted to target a journalist. In the Ukrainian media, it is often that there is a brave Ukrainian soldier who has nothing to do with this uh, journalist matter, the journalist who was... Uh, quite negligent that he worked on the separatist territory, who didn't care about like his own safety. He made his like choice of going to that dangerous spot that day. But uh, what we want to tell and what I want to tell is that basically we should look farther than this. And the stories of both Rokeli and Markiv are worth to be told and are worth to be told from a point of view of 
of a human, of human point of view, like both of them had their own goals and had their own ideas in which they believed. And I think what is important is to try to look at them objectively without like setting the emotions aside and look at the facts and try to investigate and understand whether there is really enough like evidence to say that this Ukrainian Italian citizen has anything to do with the death of the another Italian citizen. And this is what not, in my opinion, has been done during the first uh, great trial. And it's very important in uh, what you're talking about, this dramatic thing that basically these two people could have had similar values because they both came to, to Maidan and Markiv was one of the activists and Rukeli came with the sympathy to Maidan. And suddenly they, they were juxtaposed, right, in terms of values by different contexts. But let me ask what you're telling about this court sentence. It seems that there are many things that are really not well investigated, not well, very well evidenced. But what is the reaction of the community, of media community in Italy, in Ukraine, globally? Because there were so many journalists, international journalists, who were at the time in Slovyansk, so they have seen what happened. What is the reaction on it? Yes, exactly. You know, the, the, the situation in Slovyansk was very well documented. I, I was personally re-watching recently the perfect uh, series by Vice News and Simon Ostrovsky, Russian roulette. He was in Slovyansk in April and then he returned again in May. He was abducted there by separatist forces and put into the basement in Slovyansk. And, you know, there are so, so many, so many... Uh, testimonies of what was going on there, it is striking that the court didn't consider them. We interviewed Simon Ostrovsky for our documentary, and he described how journalists were treated on, by both sides of the war, what was uh, the attitude on the separatist-controlled areas, and that uh, that attitude was much more hostile than the attitude of the Ukrainian soldiers, of the Ukrainian army. Like, no journalist we talked to for the documentary said they experienced like any problems on the Ukrainian-controlled side, but many of them said they did experience problems on the separatist-controlled side. And in the court, however, the situation is presented as completely the opposite. The prosecution argued that it was the Ukrainian military that was targeting journalists. They even quoted a report by OECE as a proof of that. But in fact, the report, if you read it, it says completely the opposite. 70% of cases of violations of like attacks on journalists, etc., quoted in that report, happened on the separatist-controlled areas. But in court, this report was completely like manipulated and some quotes from it were taken out of context to present it as a proof that it was the Ukrainian authorities and the Ukrainian military who was targeting journalists. So, you know, what uh, is also striking is that how much emotionally charged this case has been both in court and in the media. Well, it didn't attract a lot of media attention in Italy, that must be said. Some Italian media, mostly lo local ones, followed it quite like closely, going to every hearing and describing what was happening. And those accounts are actually the most credible. But then there were some articles in the Italian press by journalists who just went to one or two hearings and who wrote this 
emotionally charged articles about the atmosphere that they were writing that the Ukrainian community uh, members who were coming from all across Italy to support Markov in court. They were like far-right activists and they were wearing this embroidered shirts, which is again a confirmation of their far-right views. That they The slogan, Glory to Ukraine, that was heard in court in support of Markiv, that was a fascist slogan. You know, many other like cliches of uh, really familiar and really resembling Russian propaganda. So setting these emotions aside, I think that it is really necessary and is really important because there is another thing that uh, there were some photos taken from Markiv's phone for example, there was a photo of Ukrainian military with a swastika flag. And this was in court presented as this alleged allegiance of Markiv and other Ukrainian military to far right. Well, Markiv said that it was a trophy they seized from the separatists. But these words were never taken into consideration. Italian media wrote a lot about this photo and other photos found in his phone that had nothing to do with the murder, with the death of Drokeli and Mironov, but that helped to create this narrative of a monster, of a dangerous far-right criminal who was like deliberately willing to kill journalists, despite the fact that he was the source for many Italian journalists at the time that he warned them not to go there because it was a dangerous area. And even despite the fact that one of the journalist's testimonies in court, who who was the person who talked to Marke for that article that we mentioned earlier, this person, six months after the death of Rokelin Mironov, he went to see Markiv in the hospital and he accepted a bulletproof vest as a gift from him. So one might wonder if this person, after that conversation, was sure that Markiv admitted to uh, killing the journalists of Ukrainian army targeting journalists. Why would this person go to meet uh, the alleged killer in a hospital and have a bulletproof vest as a gift from him? That's indeed very, very sad what you say. Can we assume, can we make a, a hypothesis maybe that, uh, well, it's it's very ideologically charged and that all those cliches about fascists in Ukraine is, is very ideologically charged and maybe some people in the prosecution see the, the story rather through ideological eyes than through a fact based investigation? Well, I think it's a combination of factors, you know. Yes, reading the case materials and re-reading the motivation of sentence, I really stumble upon some really factually incorrect phrases. Like, for example, it says that the separatist movement in Donbass was created and started after Ukraine gained its independence in 1991. What we know is completely untrue, that the any kind of separatist separatism in Donbass appeared there in 2014 and was heavily supported by Russia and brought there by Russian special forces and special agents such as Igor Strelkov-Girkin. So, you know, the, the, the very thing that there is no questioning of separatist actions in uh, in this trial, that there wasn't the hypothesis that it was a separatist who might have targeted the journalist, was not even taken into consideration. It was uh, not taken into consideration that separatists by late May 2014 were committing already a series of 
serious crimes in Slovyansk, like abduction, uh, illegal detention, killing uh, of uh, pro-Ukrainian activists. It was never mentioned in, in trial, while the unproportionate uh, amount of attention was paid to the alleged crimes and uh, violations by the Ukrainian army. It was never said that the separatists were shooting in the direction of the Ukrainian positions from the residential areas and the Ukrainian army was responding and sometimes hitting the residential areas because separatists were using these areas and civilians as a life vest. So the actions of separatists were not questioned in the court and the emphasis was put on the actions of the Ukrainian military and no local residents were also like heard in court and who might describe what was the situation at the moment because in in our investigation we met with residents of Slovyansk who said how separatists were using civilians basically as a protection, as a life barrier. They were shooting in the direction of the Ukrainian army from the uh, residential areas. So this was not mentioned in court either. And in general, the representation of war in Ukraine was pretty uh, skewed in the court materials and also in the materials of the Italian press about this uh, case because it was not mentioned that uh, it was the Russian special agents who initiated the war in Slovyansk, that it was Igor Strelkov, illegal armed forces who were overtaking the buildings uh, in Slovyansk, that it was separatists who were abducting, torturing and killing uh, activists uh, and other people in Slovyansk. So none of that was taken into consideration. Let me now maybe come to the last question after we discussed all those difficulties of the of the case let me talk about your project you are making this documentary you're also writing a book about Markiev you all told us a little bit about the story about the story you wanted to tell what is what is the goal and what will be the ambience of this documentary will it indeed be a storytelling about these two people who were uh, tragically put uh, put together in, in this tragic situation in Donbass? The documentary will be a story of these two people. It will also be a story of war, of a conflict, of a work of journalists in the conflict, but it will also be a, an investigation and ultimately it will try to uh, have a honest discussion about whether this uh, trial was really fair and whether there was a there might have been a judiciary mistake in sentencing Markiv to 24 years in prison without any direct proof and we can't speak that this sentence was beyond any reasonable doubt it wasn't there are so many doubts surrounding this case that hopefully the appeals court will take them in consideration and the truth for both uh, memory of the deceased journalist Rokelin Mironov and the truth for the Ukrainian soldier whose life is now maybe broken by this uh, court decision, that finally this truth uh, would be restored. Thank you so much. Let's hope indeed that justice will be uh, will be just, uh, in Italian justice in particular. And uh, there will be, as far as I understand, the appeals court in, in autumn, is this correct? Yes, the appeals court is pending. We don't know yet the exact uh, date when it is 
scheduled to start. It was postponed due to COVID-19 outbreak in Italy. And I think it is important that uh, this case is talked about on an international level. There were some publications about the case in the Western media, in the New York Times, in Washington Post, uh, some publications. I agree with some of them. I disagree with some of the other of them. But I think what is important is to look at the evidence and to look beyond the emotional uh, interpretations, to look at the circumstances of this case and to do a proper investigation the way we were trying to do it as journalists and filmmakers. But I do believe that the prosecution also needs to do it. Thank you so much, Olga, for this conversation. We talked about a very important case, although it it, uh, it targets only one particular Ukrainian citizen, Vitaly Markiv, who is charged in by Italian court and uh, sentenced to 24 years in prison. We talked with Olga Tokaruk, independent journalist and documentary filmmaker, former journalist at Romatsky.ua, who is now doing a documentary with her Italian colleagues, a documentary about what happened in May 2014 in Donbass near Slovyansk. This was Ukraine World Podcast. We make this podcast weekly uh, under the slogan of Explaining Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenkom, editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org. I was assisted by Oleksiy Soldatov, the sound editor, and Maria Sidenko, the social media editor. Stay with us. Stay with ukraineworld.org.